jump right in. Father, we bless you. We, uh, we thank you for these few moments that we gather together and open your word together. Lord, we are grateful that you have preserved your word for us, and we're grateful that we can actually open and study it to hear, to hear your heart, to know that these are words preserved by the living God, to bring life and light, to cause us to be your imagers. I pray as we open this together, we would not be the same after looking into the mirror of your word than we were before we did. I pray that each one of us now would purpose in our hearts to, to hear from your spirit for what it is you would speak to us for your word. And Lord, I ask that you would help me, help me to share that which you would desire to be revealed. Lord, we, we bless you and again, thank you. We give you all the glory and we praise you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen? All right. So, as I think most everybody knows, we are working through the book of Daniel. We're going to go, go into chapter 2 tonight. As always, I like to give credit for my sources right up front. The main source I've been using for uh, study on um, uh, on Daniel right now is, is the, the work done by Dr. Wendy Witter, who's a Ph.D. in Near Eastern Studies from the University of the Free State of South Africa. She's a master's in Hebrew and Semitic Studies. She also is a master in MDiv from Grand Rapids uh, uh, Theological Seminary. So <clears throat> this... Um, particular, she did a, a, a course on Daniel that's in Lagos mobile, um, mobile education. Highly recommend Lagos as a Bible software. If anyone is looking for a, a seriously good Bible software, Marker knows how good it is. Um, he's been studying with me through it. So um, it's an amazing, amazing platform. So highly recommend it. Um, check it out. Lots of good stuff in it. All right. So just, uh, I'm going to Again, I'm going to go over an inter interview, introduce the book, not near as long as we did the last two weeks, just enough to kind of refresh our mind, and then we'll jump in, you know, we'll do a short summary on chapter one and jump into chapter two. Got lots to cover tonight. Chapter two is a long chapter. We may not get through it tonight. It may take us a couple of weeks. We'll, we'll see, how it, see how it works out. Um, so the book of Daniel, when, you, when we think of book of Daniel, all right, pop culture, most of us, when we think of book of Daniel, we put it right up there with the book of Revelation, right? And, and, and most people think Daniel is there, why? To help us to construct these, this detailed timeline of the end times, right? And, and you've got, you got mutant animals, you've got gargantuan scorpions, you've got mysterious stuff called wormwood, all these things, right? That's, that's typically what we think about. Here's the problem. The problem is, is when you try to interpret the scripture based on headlines, every couple of years you have to change your charts. Because things don't happen the way the head, that you think they're going to happen according to the headlines, and the old ones start becoming wrong, and next thing you know, we have new charts and everything's out of date. Why is that? Why is that? The answer is that the book of Daniel, and the book of Revelation for that matter, it's not given as a secret key to end times. The book of Daniel was not written so that we have a secret key to know when Jesus is coming back. Come on up there. Right here, Carmen. Yeah. Um, so, the, if we're going to understand the book of Daniel, the very first thing that we want to do is understand that it had immediate application and immediate relevance to both the author and its original audience. When they received that word, when, when the author wrote the word, I believe it was Daniel, but when, when the author wrote the word and, and, the, the, and the, 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 those who received it received the word, they knew exactly what it meant. They knew why they were getting it. 
They didn't have the questions we have, uh, you know, sitting here 2,500 years removed from it. Um, this, this had a, immediate application. So if we spend our time trying to figure out what did the author mean when he wrote it, what did they hear when they heard it, and getting that understanding first, that interpretation first, then we can see how does this apply to our lives. And then we discover all kinds of ways that the entire Bible is all connected. All these things keep popping up all over the place. These writers keep using the same motifs and pictures over and over to connect the bigger picture, the progressive revelation of God, his kingdom breaking into the world, which is what we're living out and how it has immediate application to our lives. So that's what we're trying to do as we're going through Daniel. We're not trying to construct a, uh, you know, a nice, neat little timeline of uh, some period of time. We're going to see that there are some of those in here. But what we're trying to do is why was, did the Spirit of God uh, inspire Daniel to put this down to move the heart of the people of God for the purposes and plans of God? That's what we're going to try to look for. All right. So looking the whole book as a whole, and this is um, we want to remember this overview. I'm going to go over this each, each week because it's super important. The, the, the book speaks as much to how it's put together as it does in the message that's inside of it. So the first half of the Daniel, Daniel's 12 chapters, 12 chapters. So it's easy to remember, uh, you know, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, those kinds of things, a dozen eggs, you know. The, um, yeah, exactly. Whatever helps you, helps you remember. Um, but the first half is a specific, which, what's unique about Daniel is that it has two separate genres, two different types of writing. The first half are stories, and most of us remember these stories um, or, or have heard these stories at some point. We had the introduction to the king's food. We got Nebuchadnezzar's statue dream we're going to talk about today. You got the fiery furnace in chapter 3. You have Nebuchadnezzar's tree dream. You have the handwriting on the wall with Belshazzar. And finally, you get Daniel in the lion's den in chapter 6. But then when we get to chapter 7, the type of writing changes completely. And it goes from this narrative uh, theology, this narrative m method of, of communicating to what's called a, a prophetic or apocalyptic writings. Um, and it's kind of a mixture. It's actually not purely prophetic and not purely apocalyptic. It's kind of, kind of a mixture, which makes it even more unique. And you get, and what's interesting is in the first half, everybody else is having dreams and Daniel's interpreting them. When we get to the second half, Daniel's having dreams and he has no idea what they mean. He needs a spiritual help to interpret them. Okay, this is interesting. And it's on purpose that way. It's on purpose that way. Nothing's an accident when you're approaching the Word of God. These are, these are ways that we dig in and get excited about discovering how God's trying to communi communicate to us. So when we get to the second half, you got these four beasts, you got the ram and the goats, you get, you get Daniel's prayer in the 70 weeks, and you get three chapters on the, all this um, geopolitical maneuvering between kings of the north and kings of the south, and what is all that about? And we'll, we're, we're a bit of a ways from there. We'll get there. And as my wife said, as she was going back, she went back and reread the whole book ahead of time. She goes, I remember Daniel now. I like that first half. I have no idea what the second half's talking about. <laughs> and so there's usually two types of people that approach Daniel. The type of people that are just like that. Give me the first half. Those stories, they make sense. And then you get the people who are literally, I, I want the second half because I'm trying to figure out what all that means. And so there's a little bit of something for everybody. All right, so that's an overview. 
So what is, what's the over, overarching message? What is Daniel trying to teach us? And you're going to see this is going to come right out in this chapter as we're going through this. What is this theology? Theology means the study of God. What is it that Daniel is trying to tell us about God? Or what is God trying to reveal about himself through Daniel? Number one, first and foremost, God is sovereign. And we're going to see why that's important. God is sovereign. Number two, he has continuing care for his people, which is not intuitive when you look at their circumstances. They were just carried away in exile to a foreign land. They lost everything. And God's caring for us? What? But that's the theme, is your circumstances don't dictate how God's caring for you. Your circumstances don't dictate God's sovereignty. All right? And so finally, the other thing we get out of this is we get theology through story. 40% of the Bible is theology through story. And so it's really important when you're reading the stories to pay attention to the details. Why? Because when you're telling a story, okay, anybody who has a parent, uh, uh, anybody who is, well, maybe even if you, if you had a parent, your parent did the same thing, and you have kids, when you're trying to teach your kids the lessons, how often do you use a story to tell them? Right? And when you're using a story, you are leaving certain details out and you're including other details. Why? Because you want them to get the lesson from the story. Okay? I remember my dad doing the same thing with me, telling me stories like that. I remember doing the same thing. In fact, I remember purposely not telling my kids stories. You know, I was like, no, you don't get to hear that to your older. I don't. <laughs> so, anyway, I'm perhaps revealing too much about my childhood. Anyway, all right. Uh, so, all right. Overview, what's going on here? You have a people in exile. They are literally in theological shock. They have assumed a certain level of security. There's no way, in the ancient world, there's no way God allows a foreign go, uh, uh, um, uh, enemy to come and capture Jerusalem. That would mean he is seeing himself as less. He does not because, in the ancient world, if my army beat your army, my God's bigger than your God. That's what it meant. That's what it translated. So the Israelites, go back and study Ezekiel. The Israelites absolutely did not believe that God would allow Jerusalem to be captured and sacked. So they are in theological shock as they are in this foreign land. Jerusalem's been sacked. Everything's been gone. They're outside the land. The land is gone. The king is gone. The temple's gone. Uh, Does God still care about us? We got evil. We got Gentile kings ruling over us. Some of them are evil. Does God still have a purpose and plan for us? Anybody ever feel that way? There are evil people ruling over us. Where are you, God? All right. So, the structure of Daniel. Um, there's three ways, and this is going to play into what we look at tonight. I'm, the reason why I'm bringing, I'm, I'm really highlighting some of the overview stuff because it's going to be relevant to what we're going to study in the chapter. So like I said, there's two distinct genres. In other words, the first half is in narrative. The second half is in prophetic apocalyptic. There's also this date formulation, which you see is very it's unique. Not unique. It's um, unusual in Daniel that you see dates over and over again because these dates bookend stories on purpose to reveal that, that there is a complexity. There's a completeness through the dates. And finally, two languages. And we're going to drill down on those two languages for a minute because tonight we're going to enter into the second language when we get into the text. 
So Daniel, again, unique among the books of the Bible, most of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, is written in Hebrew, most of it. There's a few verses here and there that are written in Aramaic. Ezra has a few chapters. But Daniel is unique in that there is a large section, multiple chapters, that are written in Aramaic. Chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic. This is the language of the Persians. This isn't Hebrew language. And so Daniel chapter 1 is written in Hebrew. It's the preface to the book. It introduces us to it. And the moment we get into having these conversations in the court of Babylon, the language switches. It switches to Aramaic. And it stays in Aramaic all the way through these interactions in a foreign court until it switches back to talking about what's going to happen in Israel after the exile. Then it switches back to Hebrew. It's really fascinating. And so um, when we look at that, uh, well, we'll actually, we're actually going to, I'll take a drill down a little bit in, in a minute and see that, that, that the structure of the Aramaic, when we get into chapter 2, is actually teaching us a lesson, something the author wants us to see. You know, I've I got to say this, guys. When I study Daniel, when I read these things, and, you know, most of us, we read the words and we're looking for a meaning out of a story, especially, you know, if you read devotionally, you open your Bible up and you're reading along and you're trying to listen if God's trying to speak something to you, you know, is there wisdom I can apply to my life, something he wants to speak to me. But when you sit back and you look at an overview of the book and you see the way the book is put together, this is genius level writing. Somebody actually had to sit down, plan out all these stories, put them in the exact right places, in the exact right way, with the exact right details to give a message from the structure itself. That's the Word of God. And I'm telling you, it's not one place in the Word of God. It's over and over and over, multiple places. The second thing we have to get used to is they don't write the way we're used to writing. Like if, if you and I tell a story, right, we may, we may uh, at the beginning of the story, we may um, have like a thesis or introduce you to the problem, the conflict. We may give you some hints as we go along, and we progressively build. And then sometimes, sometime towards the end of the story, bam, comes the punchline, right? And then, and then afterwards we may have a little bit of an epilogue or leave us with a lesson, leave us with a, a theme, leave us with something afterwards, right? Well, in ancient world, very often the main point of the story was actually in the middle. It would build up to the point, and it would drop back away from the point. It would build you up to it and drop you back. And so when we're wanting to see what the main point is, very often we have to look to the middle of the text rather than to the, to the extremes, to the ends. So not that those others aren't important. They are. But you'll see hints that are getting you to the middle. And actually that's what we're going to see when we get into chapter 2 tonight. All right. So last week we covered chapter 1. Chapter 1 is literally, it's, it's a microcosm of the whole book. It introduces us to the whole book. Remember, it had a date in the beginning and a date at the end of it. So it's literally, and it, and it surveys that the, basically covers the entire 70 years of exile in the first chapter. It covers the whole 70 years just in the first chapter. And its themes were what? You had this struggle, this conflict between two human kings. You had Jehoiakim. You had Nebuchadnezzar. You had a struggle between two gods. You had the God of Israel and Nebuchadnezzar who was acting on behalf of his God. And it looks like Nebuchadnezzar's God's God is winning. But the scripture tells us God is the one allowing Nebuchadnezzar to do that. And so you see this spiritual conflict going on. And what we see is this term used three times. God gave. God gave. 
God gave. What did he do? He gave Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He gave favor and grace to Daniel and his three friends. He gave wisdom. He gave skill. He gave spiritual giftings. He gave. This theme comes up. It's God who's doing all this. Here they are in exile, far away, thinking that God doesn't care anymore, thinking that God's not powerful anymore. And what does it say? God's the one giving the whole time. God's the one giving. You see how it's taking real-life circumstances that they're living through that are tough, that are hard, that are difficult, that they don't understand, and showing God's in the middle of it. God's in the middle of it. God's in the middle of it. So the setting was what? Now, all of a sudden, some of the temple vessels, some of these vessels of Yahweh, some of these holy and pure vessels are now stored in the temple of Babylon. It looks like Yahweh loses. It looks like He's subservient to the gods of Babylon. And at the same time, we have some of these royal individuals, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, these, these friends of, of Daniel, uh, in, in, uh, all of a sudden, ro- these, the royalty of Israel in the royal court of Babylon serving the pagan king. It looks like they're the losers. But what's going on here? What did Babylon do? They would take the foreign uh, uh, um, uh, uh, young people and they would bring them in and they had this intense three-year indoctrination into pagan worldview into everything babylon all of their myths all of their stories their language all of their understanding they were looking to make them good servants of babylon so that they would be their emissaries they could send them back they could send them out they could help rule uh according to um uh their way of ruling but we get this conflict in the first chapter what's the conflict they're being served by the king's table And there's this meat and wine. Now, we don't know why Daniel and his friends thought the meat and wine was defiling. I, you know, I gave you my best guess. I'm I'm not usually short of an opinion. But anyway, we don't know for a fact. Um, But they know, we know it defiled them. And they, so here they are in the court, in a pagan court, willing to serve. Why? Because they knew God put them there but not willing to compromise. And that's the point. How do we live for God in a pagan culture? You are willing to serve and not willing to compromise. You are willing to serve, but not willing to compromise. And so when it came to that personal conviction, they didn't just refuse. They sought God. They acted in faith. They worked with those around, and they got creative to how God could bring his favor in the midst of the conflict. They didn't just confront the culture. They presented a test so that the culture itself could see the greatness of God. And, and, and so they acted in faith. And so the greater issue, the greater theological issue, is that of divine nurture versus human nurture. What, here was the question. On whom or what will the Hebrews rely for their sustenance in their captivity? Are they going to rely... For their sustenance on the court that they're in, or are they going to rely on God no matter what's put in front of them? All right, so the key is this. Here's the key to understanding chapter 1. It's not about a diet plan. It's not a diet plan. It's where's the source of your life and sustenance found. Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus had the same temptation they did had the same temptation they did all right so what he does 
Daniel and his friends, what they do is they find a way to maintain devotion to God in the midst of a pagan court. They don't deny serving the pagan court. In fact, they turn out to be the best servants Nebuchadnezzar has. Think about that. They turn out to be his best servants. Yet, they find a way to maintain their devotion to God while doing it. So the central theological theme, the providential hand hand of God is behind all the events that happen. What if? God allowed that just so they could be that servant right in front of a pagan king who couldn't see it any other way. And that's going to bring us into our chapter 2. These are the important questions as we're going through the book. Keep these in your mind. We're going to be going, these are the important questions. How do we live in exile, they're asking. What's the relationship between faith and culture? Where, Where do I embrace culture? Where do I stand in faith? To what extent do I assimilate to what's around me? Oops. Well, I had more questions, but uh, I copied the slide twice, so I don't know what they are. Anyway. (laughs) So we won't go over those. All right. Chapter 2. We're going to jump into chapter 2 tonight. And what I'm going to do is we're going to read the text together. I'll have it up here, but if you have your Bibles, you like your translation, sometimes it's helpful to... See two or three translations. You can open that up. You can follow along with what I have up here. Now, in about, I think it's verse 7. I forget the exact verse. It's going to switch from Hebrew to Aramaic, but we won't know it because we're going to read it in English. So it'll seem seamless to us. But if you're reading it in the original language, all of a sudden it just, bam, switches from one language to another. They're similar, but they're different. The other thing that happens is where this this chiastic structure I was talking about before, this way that they wrote in the ancient world, instead of writing in a straight line, they kind of write to the main point, get it in the middle, and go back. This is where this chiastic structure begins in the Aramaic. And so I want to review this, because this is going to be telling us something we're going to see again later. Everything we're going to read about here in this story is going to come up in one of those visions. So so the Lord is going to speak to us these things two different ways. And so let's see how this is put together. So this is Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. Um, In fact, let's just look at it this way. Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. uh, Daniel 2 is a dream about four kingdoms, and it's replaced by a fifth. Daniel 7 is a vision of four kingdoms replaced by a fifth. In the first one, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. In the next one, Daniel has the dream. Okay? This is really cool. That's on purpose. Now, that's the, that's the extreme, and it takes us to the next level in. What's the next level? Daniel 3, da- Daniel's friends are going to face a fiery furnace. What's going to happen in Daniel 6? Daniel's going to face a lion's den. So these are put as bookends. So we get this first set of bookends. We get the next, next set of bookends. They're all pointing us to a main theme, a main purpose. What is that main theme? main purpose in daniel 4 a proud gentile king is being judged in daniel 5 a proud gentile king is being judged in the first one he repents in the second one he loses his throne what's the main point here they are thinking god god of heaven is the god of israel and what the god of heaven is saying no i am the god of the whole earth i am the god over all the kings of the earth i decide who's king when and for how long and when they don't bow down to me i will judge them there will be a time and this is the point you can trust you can serve me wherever you are in any place knowing that i am king 
And that's going to come out in our chapter tonight loud and clear. That's the main theme we're going to see through the whole book. um, Okay, what I'm saying is Daniel... Daniel 4 and 5 do happen in that order. Daniel 4 happens to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel 5 happens to another king, Belshazzar. Okay? Nebuchadnezzar is in chapter 4. Belshazzar is in chapter 5. They're both kings of Babylon, but they're separated by several kings in between. They're They're not one king following the other in succession. The whole point is the story of what happens to, Bel, to, to Nebuchadnezzar, which we'll go, go into detail when we get there, and the, whole, and the point of what happens to Belshazzar, the handwriting on the wall, that night he loses his kingdom and he is judged, and we'll look at the details as to why. But the point is this. This is how, if I'm in the ancient world, remember, we're trying to look at this. If I'm in the ancient world reading this story, and I got to this, and I saw that these two were the main point, why would, why would God want to make this the main point? Well, if, if this is going to be written to me, this is... Uh, I'm going to be an ancient Israelite, right? Ancient Near Eastern uh, uh, Israelite from the Mediterranean area. If this is this be spoken, spoken to me, what am I thinking? I'm thinking my God is the God of my land, Israel, Jerusalem. That's where he is. Those pagan nations, they have their gods. They're given over to their gods. This is my land. And yet I find myself serving here. Did my God somehow lose control? Is he somehow less? All along, I thought he was the number one. All along, I thought he was the greatest. All, the, all along, I thought he was the God of God, the Lords of Lords. And what? all of a sudden, I read this story and go, oh, my goodness. He's not just the God whose name is in Jerusalem. He's the God who put Nebuchadnezzar in and took Nebuchadnezzar out. He's the God that put Belshazzar in and took Belshazzar out. My whole worldview about who God is just exploded when I see this. It explains what? It explains that I can have a purpose even if I'm in exile. Even if I was never one of the rebellious ones that led us to exile. Even if I'm in exile because other people rebelled and I, and I got swept along in the current because of it. Talking Daniel and his three friends. And here I am, swept along to this because of that, and I'm in this place. What am I to do? Remember our questions? Has God abandoned us? Is there a purpose for us? Does this make sense? This is how, this is what would have been thought of. Again, got to put ourselves into their, their mindset. All right, let's jump in. So this chapter's got five scenes. Um, we got Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and there's this crisis going on with the wise men. Then we have Daniel slash God's intervention, um, and then we have Daniel's description um, and Daniel's interpretation, and finally, how does Nebuchadnezzar respond to all that? So we get Nebuchadnezzar in the beginning, Nebuchadnezzar in the end, and we'll see Daniel go through these stages as we get through um, go through the uh, through the chapter. All right. So what are the themes we're going to look at? Looks like I went ahead. The themes we're going to look at again: God is sovereign. We're going to look at the pride of human rulers. We're going to look at this challenge um, between these two, the sovereignty of God and the pride of human rulers. It's going to create this tension, and that tension is going to be on those who are faithful. The faithful ones are going to get caught between the pride of a human ruler and the sovereignty of God. And how 
are they going to act faithfully in the midst of that tension? This is, this is what we're going to look at. All right. This is also a particular type of writing. It's called a court contest. And so this story, this type of story, is, is in multiple ancient Near Eastern texts. It's where someone who is of low esteem, low status, who is brought up to have the answer to the conflict and raised up to this point of high status. So this is a type of story. Yes, it's historical. Yes, um, it, these things really happen, but it's also a type of story. All right, and we're going to see this type show up in chapter 4. We'll see it in chapter 5. And if you, if you want to see other examples of that type, go back in Genesis and look at the story of Joseph. It's a perfect example of it. You'll see multiple places like that. All right, um, so let's just jump into the text. Here we go. This is in, I'm in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. So in the third year of the reign of jo- oops, why am I in ver- chapter one verse one? Oh, I put the wrong verse on my screen. Hang on, I'm going to have to look it up here. I don't have it memorized. Maybe Daniel two one. Sorry guys. In the second year, okay, so this is what it says, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. So this is going to be, and we'll see this in a minute, this is 603 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, his spirit was troubled, and his slept left him. Okay, this is setting up the whole chapter. So it's given us, that. remember the date formulation? It's given us a date, it's given a time stamp here. Um, there's a time stamp, this is early on. It's early on in and. um uh, in fact, I'll just go through that. So we get we get this second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. He started reigning in 605. Uh, this is during his second year. And what does he have? He has a troubling dream. There's a dream and it's bothering him. Now, to us, a troubling dream could be just, you know, bad spaghetti, right? I had some bad spaghetti. I had a bad dream, right? To us, I could be stressed out. To us, a troubling dream could just be, You know, my brain's just trying to figure out what's going on around me when I'm not awake while I'm asleep. You know, this is, this is, there's not a whole lot to understand for most of us when we have a troubling dream. Now, um, God still does work through dreams. I've had several dreams from the Lord. He still speaks through those. But we don't naturally just, in our culture, wake up and think about our dreams as uh, troubling, as really troubling us. Um, In the ancient Near East, though, again, reading this in its context, when you're reading a story and he's saying he's having troubling dreams, right away you should be on the edge of your seat going, "Uh uh-oh, the king having troubling dreams set up for conflict right here. What's going on? These are messages from the gods. This is life or death for the king or for his kingdom. Do you remember Pharaoh's dream? Remember Pharaoh, he, I mean, Pharaoh's dream was so upsetting, they got a guy out of prison to come help figure it out, right? They were willing to find any way they could. This is the ancient world. That's how they were thinking. Very important to understand. Now, why? Why? What's the difference? It's because underlying their worldview, they understood that that, that this world wasn't all there is. There is a supernatural world as well. In our culture, we don't pay much attention to there being a spiritual world. In their culture, they, the spiritual world was very much as a real and a part of in, in everyday life as the physical world. 
and the gods were involved in the affairs of the world. They had a grand plan. It was written somehow in the fabric of the world. And that plan, the way you figured it out is you had to, you had to pay attention to nature. You had to look at your circumstances. You had to have your dreams uh, unencoded. The dreams were encoded messages. And you needed experts to decipher those things. They had whole teams of experts. Uh, we're going to find out that would use divination. In other words, they had special ways to access the divine world and it's specifically looking at what's going on in the, on the future. And what's fascinating is the Bible prohibits all of that. It prohibits doing those things. Yet, God uses the dreams. It doesn't prohibit the supernatural worldview uh, or understanding the supernatural worldview. It prohibits interacting with the supernatural worldview outside of him. That's what it prohibits. So let's jump into chapter 2 here. Let's, let's see what this setup is giving. I mean, verse 2. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in, and they stood before the king. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is literally calling everybody who can possibly help. He wants all his experts in here at one time. Everybody. Y'all, in other words, you know, as we would say here in Texas, it's not y'all, it's all y'all. Verse 3, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Now, to them so far, okay, you know, we're, this is what we do. We're the experts. All right, good enough. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, and this is where it switches right here. Right here, the language switches from the Hebrew to Aramaic. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word for me is firm. He says, you know, what I'm about to tell you, this is the way it's going to be. If you do not make known to me the dream, the, the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered him a second time and they said, Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time. I know you're stalling. You're playing me. Y'all are supposed to be the experts of this supernatural spiritual world. Okay, be the expert. Tell me not only the interpretation, but I want to know the dream itself. Because you see that my word is firm. You're just stalling. You're just playing, play, trying to get time. Verse 9. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. Now, we don't know why Nebuchadnezzar took this hard stand. But there are some features that are going on here. Again, if you're reading this story, if you're hearing this story, and you're in the ancient world, you're, you're befuddled. Okay? Clearly, something's up with the king. Now, we know this is very early in this reign. It's only two years in. He's, he's not yet king of the whole world, okay? He's still, 
process of conquering. He's known as one of the greatest kings in antiquities from, from what he's conquered. He's one of the most powerful kings of all history. But at this point, he's not there yet. He's still on his upward move. Uh, he's still figuring out who, in the, who among all of these experts are loyal to me and my court and who's not. He's still in this place. And he's obviously, he's suspicious. He's suspicious, you know, yeah, sure, you want me to tell you, so you can move me the way you want to move me. And I, but I'm way too troubled. The gods are trying to tell me something, and I, I need to know who's going to give me the truth here. And the only way I'll know you're giving me the truth is to do something that no human being has ever done before. I just gave up what the next verse tells us here. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. Take note of that. There's not a man on earth who can, who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with the flesh. The only one who knows it are the gods, and they're not here. They're not standing here. They're the only ones that can know this. And in fact, they are actually correct. It, this is unprecedented. If you're reading this and you're, in, you're sitting on the edge of your seats like, oh my goodness, Nebuchadnezzar wants him to do that. Nobody's ever done that. Who can do that? How is this going to turn out? They're absolutely right. What he was asking was unreasonable in its time and in its day. The experts say, tell me the dream. The wise men didn't have the ability, nor were they ever expected to do this. This is a twist in the story. This is a real twist. For him to have done this, something had to be highly disturbing. Something had to be going on. I would submit to you, God led him to it. So the experts protest, right? Only, what do they protest? Only the gods do that, and the gods aren't here. Interesting. So, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't trust them, and what is he? He's intent on getting rid of them. We don't know why, but we just know he doesn't trust them, and he's going to get rid of them. That's what's going on here. All right, so let's jump down to verse 12. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. He's like, I'm done with all of them. I don't want any of them. Guilt by association. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Now, I'm going to say it ahead of time. Notice Daniel wasn't there. But remember I told you this. This is one of the reasons I went over chapter 1. He spent three years in indoctrination and training. He had the same learning that they did. He knows how they interpret dreams. He knows their practices of divination. He knows all of these things. He's well-versed in it. That's why he's considered culpable. Because he's considered one of them. He's been trained in it. In fact, he was tested before the king and shown to be ten times better than all the others. Remember that in chapter 1? We looked at that. He had to work out how to be, this is the key, Daniel had to work out how to be a good student without being a participant. How do I be a good student and not participate? I think that's why Daniel wasn't, uh, it's possible, this is my complete supposition, but it could be why Daniel wasn't in the first group. 
So I didn't bring that up because I didn't want to get that detailed. It's highly possible he's in his third year, but it's also possible he's completed. And that takes a little bit of detailed scaling out and all that, and I didn't want to get into it for the time. But we can bring that up later because I don't mind getting into it. <laughs> I just didn't want to confuse everybody by throwing up some more dates in there. You know, because you got the regnal year, which when it's, you know, when it's, you're looking at his second year, it actually could be the third year of the reign. And it could, you know, there's a lot of ways you could get to the three years. There's ways of reconciling it. It is an issue for interpreters. So, but good observation, Bill. <laughs> Good observation. It could be. It is a possible reason why he wasn't called, but it, but that doesn't explain why he would be killed. And so that's why I kind of lean to the side he was trained because he's going to be killed. Um, he did have some level of training either way. Yet he and his friends are at risk. So let's jump into the story. So Daniel replies with prudence and discretion to Arioch. Pay attention to what's going on here. He's the captain of the king's guard. And he had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declares to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Obviously, he wasn't in the room when this is going on. His life's on, on the line, but he's not fully informed. Like, why is my life on the line here? Then Arioch made known the matter to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Notice how Daniel's handling this whole thing. His approach is completely different than all the other wise men. All right? First of all, you remember when he was dealing with Ashpenaz and the steward in, in the first chapter? You know, when, they, when they're bringing this food, and they're like, no, I can't eat this food. It's defiling. What does he do? He doesn't just defy. He just doesn't, doesn't stand up and go, no, I can't do that. That's against my God. He appeals. He uses wisdom. He appeals to God, but he also appeals to the individuals who are in charge. Hey, so listen. This would be defiling to us. Is there a way we can work around this? Let's do this test. He uses uh, a tact. He uses prudence. He finds ways to convince. And what does he do? He doesn't go to the king and say, tell me your dream. Nobody can do this. He says, appoint a time for us to be able to do this. He uses wisdom when he's talking to the king. He does the, does the same approach he did back in uh, the first chapter. Yeah, yeah, well, hey, well, let's put it this way. He, yes, he seems to show confidence in God. The point being, his life is on the line. Either God's going to show up or he's not. That, that's what's happening here. Either God's going to show up and he is going to call on God, which we're going to see next. So he's able to gain some time, which is fascinating because he gains time when none of the other wise men can. So right away, we're seeing this distinction between Daniel and all the other wise men in the kingdom. He gets time when all the other wise men can't. He literally gets time not only for him and his guys. He gets time for everybody. All right, so let's jump back into the text. Daniel went to his house, and he made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. Most of us know them as who? Yeah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Very good. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. So that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. It's like, look guys, we need to call out to God. We need to call out on his mercy. If it's revealed, it's going to be revealed because God has mercy on us. One of the themes of scripture over and over and over is mercy triumphs over judgment. 
God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to life. But that doesn't mean judgment's not coming. Judgment is coming for all who don't receive his mercy, don't call out. So what are they doing? They're calling out and they're crying out for his mercy. They're acting in faith. They're trusting in his mercy because it's what they have. So Daniel and his three friends call on God for mercy concerning the king's mystery. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. It's interesting. It's almost like he had a dream of the dream. Okay? It's kind of like the same way it was revealed to him, it was revealed to Daniel. And Daniel blesses the God of heaven. And so now we're going to get... um, we're going to get into what's called Daniel's doxology. A doxology is a hymn of praise. It's a, kind of a short hymn of praise here, but it's packed. God has answered Daniel, and Daniel's response literally captures the theme of the entire book. What we're going to find out here, I'll give you a little hint ahead of time, is that it, the dream is cool, and there's lots of details in the dream, but the, de- the dream's not the big deal of the chapter. The chapter's actually trying to teach us something much bigger than the dream itself. And we're going to get this theme as we get into this hymn of praise here, and we're going to see how this works out. All right. So this is Daniel's doxology. It's a doxology, again, it's a hymn of praise. This starts in verse 20. Daniel answered and said, so he's, 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 they're praying, praying for God's mercy. They're listening to God, and God gives them this vision of the night. And all of a sudden, he literally sees it all. He sees everything Nebuchadnezzar. And not only does he see what Nebuchadnezzar saw, he knows why he saw it. He's got the answer to it. He's got the answer key. It's all unlocked. It all just, he was just downloaded and dumped into his spirit and his soul. And what does that do? That leads him to worship. That leads him to worship. He is, ah, pray. Anybody ever really need an answer from God? And all of a sudden, God just gives you that answer. Well, if there's ever a person who needed an answer from God at one time, this was Daniel at this moment. How do you feel in that moment when God just pours that answer into you? I remember, I literally remember when I was 12 years old, and I was 11 years old. I was 11 years old. I was about to get in, like, serious trouble in school. It doesn't really matter why. But I didn't have the answer, and I'm laying there crying out to God for mercy. I had no idea. The next morning I woke up and literally the answer was there. I was like, yes, I can do that. I can do that. And I was able to really run, hurry up, get it done before the school day started. And literally crisis averted. (laughs) God had mercy. You want to know I was praising God? And it wasn't anything like Daniel's situation. He says, blessed be the name of the God forever and ever to whom wisdom and might, to whom belong wisdom and might. These two themes right here. Wisdom and might. God is the source of wisdom. All wisdom comes from God. God is the source of power. All power comes from God. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness, and the light dwells within him. What's Daniel saying? God literally owns the times and the seasons. He literally owns the times and the seasons. What's fascinating is a study for another time. But we can actually pinpoint the birth of Christ by studying the times and the seasons. I know people are like, what? 
you've never heard it before or seen it, I've taught on it another time. That's a commercial for another time. Ask me later. But literally what you'll find out is God owns the times and the seasons. God has the power to raise up and take down kings. Now, why is that important? Anybody ever kind of get a little tired of who's in power and who isn't? God's the one who raises up and takes down. God bestows and removes power from human kings. What's interesting, here's the thing we should be getting out of this, is God actually shares that wisdom and power. God is the source of it. He has it. He knows it, and he shares it. He knows things. That, he knows the deep and dark things. What does that mean? He sees far beyond what we could ever see and ever understand. And he is able to reveal those things. James, anybody ever read the book of James? Read the very first chapter. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all, liberally and freely. But let him ask in faith, without doubting. For he who doubts is like the wind and the waves, tossed to and fro. When we want, when we're in crisis and we need the wisdom of God. I can't tell you how many times, over and over and over, I've said, Lord, your word says if we lack wisdom, we but need to ask of you. And I'll be in the middle of a situation and something will come out of my mouth and I go, that's really good. Over and over and over. This is what Daniel is saying. The doxology is anticipating the dream and its meaning. We're already going to know what the dream is and its meaning just because what he said, it's going to be all about God's power and God's wisdom. That's what it's going to be about. This dream's wisdom is source is the God of Israel, not the Babylonian gods. Well, this is the point, remember? We're starting in the first chapter, this battle between the gods. You just had all the who's who of Babylon standing there, and they couldn't do a thing. You get one lowly servant and three friends from Israel, but you get the God of heaven, and you get everything. The true source of power in the dream is the God of Israel. That's the true source of power. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. So what's, what's he doing? He's thanking God for granting him wisdom and power. Now, okay, at this point in the story, that's a little bit weird. It's a little bit weird. Why? Well, the wisdom part we can get. That's obvious. He knows the interpretation of the dream, so he got the wisdom from God. But what do you mean God's given him might? He's still, he's still low man on the totem pole, and he's praising God and thanking God for power. He's literally praising God and thanking God prophetically. How does Daniel know he will have power? Because the doxology, the praise itself, is prophetic. Daniel is going to be raised up to number two in the kingdom. He's going to be raised up to the place of power. But he's telling us this before it occurs. Again, revealing something, not about the servant, but about the God of the servant and the one who serves him. All right, so this is the primary message of chapter 2. The primary message of the chapter 2 is not the dream. It's not the interpretation. It's going to be fun. We're going to have some fun looking at it and, and taking it apart. And there's some cool stuff in there. But that's not the primary message. The primary message is this. God alone has wisdom and power, and both are his to give and take. God alone has wisdom and power.
and power, and both are his to give and take. When we get to the main theme, chapters of uh, um, uh, four, uh, was it five and six, and we see the judgment of the two kings, we're going to see wisdom and power taken and given back, and we're going to see wisdom and power removed completely. This is the main theme. So, from Daniel 1, chapter 2, Jehoiakim was given by God into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. God is sovereign. He raises up and he takes down. He raised up Nebuchadnezzar. He took down Jehoiakim, even though Jehoiakim believed it could never happen. Especially not to that guy. Oh, my goodness. He confounds the wise. He gives wisdom and discernment to the faithful. And this is what's the amazing thing. This is what's the amazing thing. He shares it. He shares it. He shares his wisdom. He shares his power. He shares his glory. He shares his dominion with humans. We were created to be his imagers. We were created. He continues to work his purposes in our lives regardless of whether we respond to him or not. However, he holds us account to it. He shares it, but he also holds us account to it. He has given us wisdom. He has given us power. What does Paul say in Romans 2? No one has an excuse. There are plenty of people who say, I don't believe in God. And God in turn says, that's okay. I don't believe in atheists. There's another way of putting it. Because I can live my life according to the Bible, or I can choose not to live my life according to the Bible. Either way, I end up proving it. He, his kingdom alone is eternal. To him alone belong power, dominion, and glory. All right. So the true source of wisdom. The true source of wisdom. So the dream and interpretation, they're important, but they're secondary in the chapter. Okay? That's what we want to remember as we go through this. They're important, and we'll see it, but they're secondary. All right, let's jump back into the text. So, therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went and he said, to him, said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king. I will show the king the interpretation. So we're set up here. He's got the interpretation. Notice he's, he's going to go in. The whole purpose of going is to give him the interpretation. Now we're set up to receive the interpretation. Then Arioch brought Daniel in, brought Daniel in before the king in haste and said, and, and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. So once again, what's the text? We're going to get the interpretation. The interpretation is here. The interpretation has arisen, has arrived. Verse 26. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. He was given a, um, uh, uh, a Babylonian name. Are, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Once again, we're set up. We're right on the edge to get the dream and the interpretation. Every sentence here is talking about the dream and the interpretation. Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. Notice, Daniel has just agreed with all his wise men. He's just put himself in the place of agreement. Humans cannot do what the king has asked. It cannot be done by humans. Notice, we're going to look in these next three verses, how many times Daniel starts to reveal the dream and then he takes a detour. 
and he's going to talk about God the giver and the revealer rather than giving him the interpretation. We've already seen it just three times, right? We just read it three times. He's going to hear the interpretation. We're going to hear the dream. We're going to hear the interpretation. Here we go. The text is doing this on purpose because it's trying to tell us that the dream and interpretation are not as important as the message that's going behind it. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mystery. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. By the way, when it says latter days there, um, most of us will think latter days like it's talking end times. That's not a good way of translating it. It just means sometime later. That's all it means. God has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar some things that are going to happen sometime later. That's, That's what it means. Your dream and visions of your head as uh, your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in the bed are these. Notice, we think he's about to tell the dream and the vision, right? So he said, your dream and the, and the visions you had in your head are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. He still hasn't told us, but what has he told us? God spoke something to you. You were laying in bed, and we're sitting here waiting to find out what it is. But Daniel says, before I tell you that, you need to know God spoke something to you and what God wants to do. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me. In other words, I didn't come up with this. God spoke this to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Again, why so many detours? Why does he keep detouring over and over? The dream and its meaning are not the main point. What is the main point? Where is true wisdom found? Is it found among Babylon's experts? Is it found among the gods of Babylon? It's only the God of heaven who shared it with Daniel. It's only the God of heaven who's the true source of wisdom. This is the point of the chapter. This is the point Daniel's trying to get across to Nebuchadnezzar. It's why he keeps holding back. From telling him the answer. Now we get into the dream. Y'all ready to get into the dream? How do everybody go, okay, okay, we believe you. Now what's the dream? <laughs> Man, what does it mean? All right. So, verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. Where's the first place in the Bible we see the word, the first main place in the Bible we see the word image? Genesis, referring to who? Humans, made in the image of God. Okay, man, made in the image of God. You saw a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. He sees this great, colossal man, and it's brilliant. It's exceedingly bright. It's amazing. It's awesome. It's all that humanity is. It looks like it's indefeatable. It's this great colossal image. The head of this image was of fine gold. It's chest and arms of silver. It's middle and thighs of bronze. It's legs of iron and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and it broke them in pieces then 
The iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. Now, we've got to get you the, the full grasp of that image. He sees this image that is, that is um, breathtakingly colossal and amazing. And it's it's gold, it's silver, it's bronze, it's iron. But then it's this iron and clay, the foundation of it. Something's wrong at the foundation. And then you see this rock. Nobody's touched this rock. No human hand. And it crushes, and it crushes it so completely. it's It's like dust at the threshing floor. There's literally no trace of it left. It went from the biggest, greatest thing you can imagine in seeing to literally being dust. Hmm. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. In contrast, this stone that was cut out, this stone that no human touched, It crushed the feet, and that stone then grew so large that it literally covered the entire earth. So now Daniel interprets the dream. What does all that mean? This was a dream. Now we'll tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings... To whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. We've already talked about this. God shares his kingdoms, his power, his glory, his might with human beings. And into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of men, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, making you rule over all of them, you are the head of gold. Verse 39. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. Verse 40, and there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. Verse 41, as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it. So just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so that the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and shall bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke into pieces the iron and the bronze and the clay and the silver and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall happen after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Now, let's break this down. 
what did he say about this kind of small? Can you all read that? Um, that? I wanted to put it all on one. That's why I made it a little bit small. But was, what is he saying? He's saying that head of gold, this great colossal man, representing all that man is, um, is, is Nebuchadnezzar. He's the head of gold. The torso, the top, is a silver torso. And this is a kingdom that comes after Nebuchadnezzar. And it's a, it's a lesser kingdom. It's not as powerful. It's not as great. And then there's a third kingdom that comes after that that will be ruling the earth. And it's, a, it's the bronze midsection. And then there's a fourth kingdom. It's the iron legs. And just as iron is, breaks everything, so this kingdom will, will, will crush what's in front of it. And finally, that, that iron becomes mixed with clay, and it's a divided kingdom. It's mixed, it's, it's, it has marriages that weaken the kingdom. So, you know, one of the things in the ancient world is that uh, uh, um, powers would, would, would intermarry their children in order for political purposes. What he's saying is this, this political intrigue in order to gain power is actually going to weaken, not strengthen. When you trust in man, you trust in the ways of man. Instead of trusting in the ways of God, you actually break your foundation, not strengthen your foundation. But finally, there's this rock. And this rock is God's kingdom, and it will endure forever, and it will destroy all human kingdoms. So what's interesting about this interpretation is that in the text itself, um, in the text itself, only two of the kingdoms are actually named. The only two that are named is Nebuchadnezzar and God's kingdom. That's the only two that are named. Now, that will never stop humans from trying to name the rest of it. <laughs> the fact that the text only names two doesn't mean we're not going to make our best effort. And as usual, I have my opinion. Um, there are two views. There, there are two views. There's a view A, and then view B has an, uh, I mean, view, there's view one and view two. View two has an A and a B. Um, we're only going to get, we're, we're not going to go into it as much detail tonight. Why? Because we're going to run into these kingdoms again when we get to chapter seven. Remember, the vision Daniel has there talks about this same thing, but a different way. So we're going to look at them again when we get to chapter seven. I'm going to introduce the two views tonight. Um, uh, just to, to kind of uh, give us some basic information. All right, so the traditional view is the Roman view. Um, there we go. Yeah, the traditional view is the Roman view. This is the one uh, that you'll find in most um, evangelical commentaries. Uh, this is the one you'll, that most of us, if we've heard of these things before and studied this anyway, this is the view most of us have probably heard. Um, uh, should I give, I won't give it away. This is actually the view I think is stronger. Um, I know people who think others are stronger, but I still like this better anyway. Uh, we'll get into it again. We'll get into more of it why when we get to the next interpretation. Um, but what is this view? What is it telling us? So if you go back through history, what's fascinating to me with the book of Daniel is, um, and, and let me say this. One of the issues we talked about is dating. When was Daniel written? Uh, part of the reason why some struggle with the date of Daniel is Daniel predicts with such incredible accuracy history if it was written during the time of Daniel in exile. Now, what's fascinating to me is that the story itself talks about God bringing revelation. 
So how can you deny revelation while God's bringing revelation? <laughs> if he's actually bringing revelation, then it's not a big deal for God to have known these things. Um, but nonetheless, there are those who don't want to deal with it because it is so accurate. Uh, I, I, think it's, I think it's a weak argument, personally. I have no problem with revelation. Um, uh, there's lots of things that have been revealed. But what do we see? So the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, we can call it Nebuchadnezzar, or you can call it Babylon. Why? If you notice, Nebuchadnezzar has pure authority. He has pure power. He can do as he wishes. He is not beholden to an authority over him. He has advisors, but it is a representative of pure authority. And his ability to go and to conquer as, uh, as much as he is able to act as he is able to, to enact laws and de-enact laws. And we're going to see that come up in the next chapter where he enacts it and he de-enacts it. He, he holds himself to his own authority. But then we're going to come to the next empire. The next empire that conquers after uh, Babylonian Empire was the Medo-Persian Empire. Um, the, the, this, uh, this is when the Medes and the Persians came together and they conquered the world. This, this will come up in Daniel 6 when Belshazzar loses the kingdom. That's because the Medo-Persians have, have come in literally that night, the night of that story, and conquer Babylon. And, uh, and it's made of these two kingdoms. The Persians are the greater of the two forces. And this will make more sense again when we get and look at the, the vision of the beasts in chapter 7. But this is the second one that comes and conquers the world. And the Medo-Persian and, and the Greece Empire, who, anybody know who the famous Greek conqueror was? Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, right. Um, and so he's the, that bronze section who rules the world, right? He literally, uh, and we'll see again, we'll see his kingdom come up in several of the chapters later in the text. Um, one of the things that I want to point out, and then finally we have the, the Roman kingdom, which is the iron, the king of iron. Rome's known to be that crushing, um, you know, beast of a kingdom that crushed everything in front of them. That's what they're known for, that iron. Now notice, we start with highest value, and we get to the metals. These are all metals. We start with the highest value metal, and then we get to the strongest metals. Now metals get stronger as they get down, but less valuable. Um, isn't that interesting? Uh, so um, now this is one of the reasons I think it's referring to the Romans at this rule. I'll say this, and I'll introduce this now. Again, I won't go into too much detail. But these kingdoms become utterly important for the gospel. One of the things Alexander the Great does when he conquers the world is he causes the whole world to speak the same business language. All of a sudden, you have one common language, Koine, in which no matter where you are in the world, you may have speak two or three other languages, but you speak Koine. If I travel to you and I want to do business with you, we can do business in Koine. We speak this, it's just a common Greek language. So he sets up a common language. Then the Romans come along after this. You ever heard, anybody ever heard all roads lead to Rome? They create this amazing network of roads and transportation and mail system that's all over. And what happens right after that? Jesus comes and the apostles travel the world and can write the scriptures in the language of the world. Hmm. Hmm. Do you think God doesn't use the kingdoms of the world for his purposes? Hmm. Furthermore, you look at the Jews in exile. 
the diaspora. They're spread out all over the place. What does that mean? The word of God is literally already gone before it gets there in all of these places all over the world. You have these synagogues that are all over the place. Where's the first place Paul goes every time he travels? Into this synagogue. The scriptures have already been put in the Septuagint into the language of the people because Alexander the Great and because of Rome. You see, these things are, it isn't just that God said, well, you can do it for a while and you can do it for a while. They think they're conquering for their purposes. God gives power for his purposes and holds them accountable when they don't use it for his. Go read Psalm 2. Put that down as homework. Read Psalm 2. So then you get to uh, the iron, the, the iron mixed with clay feet is some consider this the old Roman Empire um, that was destroyed. Some consider it a revived Roman Empire at a later time. There's a few different interpretations of how they look at it. And then finally you have the rock, which is the kingdom of God. Um, you know, there's multiple things in the scripture. You know, the, the, um, the rock may cut out without human hands, the, um, the cornerstone that was rejected by the, the leadership. Daniel? Yeah, it's supposed to be the head of gold. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. So if you got my notes, fix that in your, yeah. Um, the first, it begins, so the kingdom begins with the first advent of Christ and ultimately ends in the second advent. All right. So what's the second interpretation? The second interpretation is the Greek view. Um, and what does the Greek view say? Um, it's it's similar. It's very close. And I'll just hit it very briefly. The head of gold, you're going to head of God again. It's because I used the same slide. didn't change it. The head of gold is Babylon, the silver is Media, the bronze is Persia. They separate those into two. Um, the problem is, is that would be a historical error. But some see that that's what they think. They don't have a problem with it being a historical error. Um, the iron legs would be, fourth, would be the fourth kingdom, would be Alexander the Great. And the feet mixed with clay would be all the convoluted marriages that happened after Alexander, which is correct. I mean, that's not a bad way of looking at it. There were a lot of convoluted marriages that really ruined the Greek Empire after it broke up into four. And those details, we're going to see in amazing detail when we get to later chapters. We'll bring that up. And then finally, the rock is the rock, God's kingdom, established at some point after Greece falls. All right, so but what's the main point of all this? Human kingdoms will ultimately be destroyed and taken over by God's kingdom. That's the main point. Human kingdoms will ultimately be destroyed and taken over by God's kingdom. Here's how John Calvin put it. Daniel's not relating what was going to be completed in one moment. He's not written down something else is going to happen just like that and it's done. He just wants to teach that the kingdoms of the world are transient and that there is only one eternal kingdom. Kingdoms of the world are transient. They change. They have purposes. God uses them for his good purposes. But when they come to, to the time of accountability, God changes them. There is a time of accountability. And that, again, will come up furthermore, we talk about in the, in the book. All right, so let's finish up the chapter here. Let's get to the next part. We get Daniel's promotion. Daniel's promotion here. Then the Chaldeans. Why do I have verse 4? There we go. 47. I probably left out 46. Did I leave out 46? Sorry. Forty-six says this. 
Uh, then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face. Ah, I, I did leave this out. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. Nebuchadnezzar literally falls on his face and pays homage to Daniel and wants, wants an offering be made to Daniel. Then the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of lords and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Notice earlier in the story, Mishael, um, uh, Hananiah, and Azariah are now referred to in their Babylonian names as we're in the Aramaic part of the story, and they're ruling in Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So, and that's how the chapter ends. So, um, some final thoughts as we, we go through this ending of the chapter. Um, what, what, are, what are these purposes that, that we're, we're, we need to take away? We look at the king's response. He literally falls before Daniel in a worship position. Right? I mean, the, the, this, he was overwhelmed with what Daniel did. And how many times, it's as though, I'm going to compare it to this. How many times does an angel show up and someone falls down before an angel and goes, oh my goodness. And the angel's like, no, 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 no. I'm a servant just like you are. What, it, what's take, what we should be taking from this is not that, oh, Nebuchadnezzar was wrong. He shouldn't be worshiping Daniel. It's that he had such a revelation that God showed up in this person being used of him. God showed up in this person being used of him. It overwhelmed him that a human could be used of God like this. Was he, you know, should he have worshipped? No, no, he shouldn't. But that's not the point we're supposed to be taken from this. We all know he shouldn't. The question is, why did he? He did it because he saw God in him. And he grants Daniel a reward. He promotes Daniel as ruler over the entire province. He promotes his three friends. Now, one of the big questions that comes up to modern readers is, was Nebuchadnezzar now converted? And, and what's doesn't meet our sensibilities is that the point of the chapter isn't Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. That's not the point of the chapter. That's actually a modern question. That's a question we'd want to ask. The way Nebuchadnezzar is behaving is literally like any ancient Near Eastern king in his situation would have behaved. He behaves very typically for someone in his position. There's always room for another God. And if another God shows itself up and goes, look how great I am, that king is going to bow down and go, that's a great God. And that's exactly what he does. But this isn't the only time this happens. We're going to see this happen some more. Okay? And this is the point. Daniel's God is especially gifted. Why? Because he is the revealer of mysteries. He's the one. Nebuchadnezzar's not... Uh, now, this is another thing that's interesting. It doesn't bother Nebuchadnezzar that, that the human kingdoms get destroyed. Why? Because as long after him, at least he gets to be the great one. He's looking at this very selfishly, right? You know, he's like, oh, man. Because why? Remember, he's not at the peak of his empire yet. He's just coming up. He doesn't trust all those people around him. He just found somebody he can trust and he can put next to him. Somebody whose God has 
Imagine having your number one person, a, guy, a person who can see like that person can see. And just told you, you're on your way up. You don't really care about what's going to happen to some kingdom who knows how long from now. Okay? So this dream may be bad for human kingdoms, but it's not bad for Nebuchadnezzar. But what's our purpose in this? The God of heaven is the true source of wisdom and power. The God of Israel shares his wisdom, his power, and his dominion. He shares it. He's sharing it. But at the same time he's sharing it, he holds us accountable to it. The fact that someone may have power, the fact that someone may have wisdom, doesn't mean they're not accountable to God for having it. He will establish his kingdom, and he is sovereign over the, 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 the kingdoms of man. This is a comforting truth when you're in exile. You're one of the people of God, and you're in exile, and you don't know what's going on. This is a comforting truth. This is a comforting truth when you return and you're in the diaspora, and you've got an evil king ruling over you. This should be a comforting truth for us, who are called to be in the world but not of it. We serve a God who's sovereign over the world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. What we're going to do, just so we'll take a moment and pray, um, and then we'll let the video get turned off. And um, if, if anybody listening at home has questions, send them in. Love to hear you. And then we'll take a few minutes. We've got a few minutes yet um, to, to be able to answer questions or comments. Anybody has a question or comment, something they want to bring up, we'll take a few minutes in here to be able to do that. So let's pray. Father, we bless you. I pray that, again, as we prayed in the beginning, we continue to pray that we would not be the same after we have looked into your word than we were before. May we understand you are the God of true wisdom. You are the true source of wisdom and power. And you, in your mercy, desire to share it with us. May we be accountable to you faithful to you as Daniel and his friends. In our time, in our generation, in our culture, may it be said of us as it was said of David that we lived out the purposes of God in our generation. May we hear these purposes and know that no matter what it looks like with our eyes, you are accomplishing your good purposes. No matter what it looks like humans are creating technology and all of these things for, it is you who created a language, a world with one language and rose to spread the gospel. You have your good purposes and you will accomplish them. May we trust in that, even as we see with eyes that, does, that, that don't see down the road like you see. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me know when we're turned off, Sally, so we can, so we can chat in here.